Chapter One of the Black Bag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter One Diversions of a Ruined Gentleman. Upon a certain dreary April afternoon in the year of grace 1906, the apprehensions of Philip Kirkwood, Esquire, artiste Pientre, were enlivened by the discovery that he was occupying that singularly distressing social position, which may be summed up succinctly in a phrase through long usage grown proverbial, alone in London. These three words have come to connote in our understanding so much of human misery that, to Mr. Kirkwood, they seemed to epitomize absolutely, if not happily, the various circumstances attendant upon the predicament wherein he found himself. Inevitably, an extremist, because of his youth, he had just turned twenty-five, he took no count of mitigating matters, and would hotly have resented the suggestion that his case was anything but altogether deplorable and forlorn. That he was not actually at the end of his resources went for nothing. He held the distinction a quibble, mockingly immaterial, like the store of guineas in his pocket, too insignificant for mention when contrasted with his needs. And his base of supplies, the American city of his nativity, whence, and not without a glow of pride in his secret heart, he was wont to register at foreign hostelries, had been arbitrarily cut off from him by one of those accidents sardonically classified by insurance, and expressed corporations as acts of God. Now, to one who has lived all his days serenely in accord with the dictates of his own sweet will, taking no thought for the morrow, such a situation naturally seems both appalling and intolerable, at the first blush. It must be confessed that, to begin with, Kirkwood drew a long and disconsolate face over his fix, and, in that black hour, primitive of its kind in his brief span, he became conscious of a sinister apparition taking shape at his elbow, a shade of darkness which, clouding him on the back with a skeleton hand, croaked hollow salutations in his ear. "'Come, Mr. Kirkwood, come,' its mirthless accents rallied him. "'Have you no welcome for me? You, who have been permitted to live the quarter of a century without making my acquaintance?' "'Surely now it's high time we were learning something of one another, you and I.' "'But I don't understand,' returned Kirkwood blankly. "'I don't know you.' "'True, but you shall. I am the shade of care.' "'Dull care,' murmured Kirkwood, bewildered and dismayed, for the visitation had come upon him with little presage and no invitation whatever. "'Dull care,' the shade assured him, dull care am i and care that's anything but dull into the bargain care that's like a keen pain in your body care that lives a horror in your mind care that darkens your days and flavors with bitter poison all your nights care that but kirkwood would not listen further courageously submissive to his destiny knowing in his heart that the shade had come to stay he had found spirit to shake himself with a dogged air to lift his chin set the strong muscles of his jaw 
and smile that homely wholesome smile which was his peculiarly very well he accepted the irremediable with grim humor what must be must i don't pretend to be glad to see you but you're free to stay as long as you find the climate agreeable i warn you i shan't whine lots of men hundreds and hundreds of em have slept tight o nights with you for bedfellow if they could grin and bear you i believe i can now care mocked him with a sardonic laugh and sought to tighten upon his shoulders its bony grasp but kirkwood resolutely shrugged it off and went in search of man's most faithful dumb friend to wit his pipe the which when found and filled he lighted with a spill twisted from the envelope of a cable message which had been vicariously responsible for his introduction to the shade of care it's about time he announced watching the paper blacken and burn in the great fire that i was doing something to prove my title to a living and this was all his valedictory to a vanished competence anyway he added hastily as a fearful lest care overhearing might have read into his tone a trace of vain repining anyway i'm a slight better off than those poor devils over there i really have a great deal to be thankful for now that my attention's drawn to it for the ensuing few minutes he thought it all over soberly but with a stout heart standing at a window of his bedroom in the hotel pless hands deep in trouser pockets pipe fuming voluminously his gaze wandering out over a blurred infinitude of wet shining roofs and sooty chimney-pots all of london that a lowering drizzle would let him see and withal by no means a cheering prospect nor yet one calculated to offset the disheartening influence of the indomitable shade of care but the truth is that kirkwood's brain comprehended little that his eyes perceived his thoughts were with his heart and that was half a world away and sick with pity for another and a fairer city stricken in the flower of her loveliness writhing in promethean agony upon her storied hills there came a rapping at the door kirkwood removed the pipe from between his teeth long enough to say come in pleasantly the knob was turned the door opened kirkwood swinging on one heel beheld hesitant upon the threshold a diminutive figure in the livery of the pless pages mr kirkwood kirkwood nodded gentlemen to see you sir kirkwood nodded again smiling show him up please he said but before the words were fairly out of his mouth a footfall sounded in the corridor a hand was placed upon the shoulder of the page gently but with decision swinging him out of the way and a man stepped into the room mr brentwick kirkwood almost shouted jumping forward to seize his visitor's hand my dear boy replied the latter i'm delighted to see you got your note not an hour ago and came at once you see it was mighty good of you sit down please here are cigars why a moment ago i was the most miserable and lonely mortal on the footstool i can fancy the elder man looked up smiling at kirkwood from the depths of his armchair as the latter stood above him resting an elbow on the mantel the management knows me he offered explanation of his unceremonious appearance so i took the liberty of following on the heels of the bellhop dear boy and how are you why are you in london 
enjoying our abominable spring weather? And why the anxious undertone I detected in your note? He continued to stare curiously into Kirkwood's face. At a glance, this Mr. Brentwick was a man of tallish figure and rather slender, with a countenance thin and flushed a sensitive pink, out of which his eyes shone, keen, alert, humorous, and a trace wistful behind his glasses. His years were indeterminate, with the aspect of fifty, the spirit and the verve of thirty assorted oddly, but his hands were old, delicate, fine, and fragile and the lips beneath the drooping white moustache at times trembled, almost imperceptibly, with the generous sentiments that come with mellow age. He held his back straight and his head with an air, an air that was not a swagger, but the sign-token of seasoned experience in the world. The most carping could have found no flaw in the quiet taste of his attire. To sum up, Kirkwood's very good friend, and his only one then in London, Mr. Brentwick looked and was an English gentleman. Why? he persisted, as the younger man hesitated. I am here to find out. Tonight I leave for the continent. In the meantime, and at midnight I sail for the States, added Kirkwood. That is mainly why I wish to see you, to say good-bye for the time. You're going home. A shadow clouded Brentwick's clear eyes. To fight it out, shoulder to shoulder with my brethren in adversity. The cloud lifted. That is the spirit, declared the elder man. For the moment I did you the injustice to believe that you were running away. But now I understand. Forgive me. Pardon, too, the stupidity which I must lay at the door of my advancing years. To me, the thought of you as a Parisian fixture has become such a commonplace, Philip, that the news of the disaster hardly stirred me. Now I remember that you are a Californian. I was born in San Francisco, affirmed Kirkwood a bit sadly. My father and mother were buried there. And your fortune? I inherited my father's interest in the firm of Kirkwood and Vanderlip when I came over to study painting. I left everything in Vanderlip's hands. The business afforded me a handsome living. You have heard from Mr. Vanderlip? Fifteen minutes ago. Kirkwood took a cable form, still damp, from his pocket and handed it to his guest. Unfolding it, the latter read, Kirkwood plus London. Stay where you are. No good coming back. Everything gone. No insurance. Letter follows. Vanderlip. When I got the news in Paris, Kirkwood volunteered, I tried the banks. They refused to honor my drafts. I had a little money in hand, enough to see me home, so closed the studio and came across. I'm booked on the Minneapolis, sailing from Tilbury at daybreak. The boat train leaves at 11.30. I had hoped you might be able to dine with me and see me off. In silence, Brentwick returned the cable message. Then, with a thoughtful look, "'You are sure this is wise?' he queried. "'It's the only thing I can see.' "'But your partner says. Naturally, he thinks that by this time I should have learned to paint well enough to support myself for a few months, until he can get things running again. Perhaps I might.' Brentwick supported the presumption with a decided gesture. "'But have I a right to leave Vanderlip to fight it out alone?' for Vanderlip has a wife and kiddies to support. I, your genius. 
my ability such as it is, and that only, it can wait. No, this means simply that I must come down from the clouds, plant my feet on solid earth, and get to work. The sentiment is sound, admitted Brentwick. The practice of it, folly. Have you stopped to think what part a rising young portrait painter can contribute toward the rebuilding of a devastated city? The painting can wait, reiterated Kirkwood. I can work like other men. You can do yourself and your genius grave injustice, and I fear me you will, dear boy. It's in keeping with your heritage of American obstinacy. Now, if it were a question of money, Mr. Brentwick, Kirkwood protested vehemently, I've ample for my present needs, he added. Of course, conceded Brentwick with a sigh, I didn't really hope you would avail yourself of our friendship. Now there's my home in Aspen Villas. You have seen it? In your absence this afternoon, your estimable butler, with commendable discretion, kept me without the doors, laughed the young man. It's a comfortable home. You would not consent to share it with me until... You are more than good, but honestly, I must sail tonight. I wanted only this chance to see you before I left. You'll dine with me, won't you? If you would stay in London, Philip, we would dine together not once but many times. As it is, I myself am booked for Munich to be gone a week on business. I have many affairs needing attention between now and the 9.10 train from Victoria. If you will be my guest at Aspen Villas... Please, begged Kirkwood, with a little laugh of pleasure because of the other's insistence. I only wish I could. Another day. Oh, you will make your million in a year, and return scandalously independent. It's in your American blood. Frail white fingers tapped an arm of the chair as their owner stared gravely into the fire. I confess I envy you, he observed. The opportunity to make a million in a year? chuckled Kirkwood. No, I envy you your romance. The romance of a poor young man went out of fashion years ago. No, my dear friend, my romance died a natural death half an hour since. There spoke youth, blind, enviable youth. On the contrary, you are but turning the leaves of the first chapter of your romance, Philip. Romance is dead, contended the young man stubbornly. Long live the king, Brentwick laughed quietly, still attentive to the fire. Myself, when young, he said softly, did seek romance, but never knew it till its day was done. I'm quite sure that is a poor paraphrase of something I have read. In age, one's sight is sharpened. To see romance in another's life, at least, I say I envy you. You have youth, unconquerable youth, and the world before you. I must go. He rose stiffly, as though suddenly made conscious of his age. The old eyes peered more than a trifle wistfully, now into Kirkwood's. You will not fail to call on me by cable, dear boy, if you need anything. I ask it as a favor. I am glad you wished to see me before going out of my life. One learns to value the friendship of youth, Philip. Good-bye, and good luck attend you. Alone once more, Kirkwood returned to his window. The disappointment he felt at being robbed of his anticipated pleasure in Brentwick's company at dinner colored his mood unpleasantly. His musings merged into vacuity. 
into a dull gray mist of hopelessness comparable only to the dismal skies then lowering over london town brentwick was good but brentwick was mistaken there was really nothing for kirkwood to do but to go ahead but one steamer trunk remained to be packed the boat train would leave before midnight the steamer with the morning tide by the morrow's noon he would be upon the high seas within ten days in new york and among friends and then the problem of that afterwards perplexed kirkwood more than he cared to own brentwick had opened his eyes to the fact that he would be practically useless in san francisco he could not harbor the thought of going back only to become a charge upon vanderlip no he was resolved that thenceforward he must rely upon himself carve out his own destiny but would the art that he had cultivated with such assiduity yield him a livelihood if sincerely practiced with that end in view would the mental and physical equipment of a painter heretofore dilettante enable him to become self-supporting knotting his brows in concentration of effort to divine the future he doubted himself darkly questioning alike his abilities and his temper under trial neither ere now had ever been put to the test his eyes became somberly wistful his heart sore with regret of yesterday his yesterday of carefree youth and courage gilded with the ineffable evanescent glamour of romance of such romance thrice refined of dross as only he knows who has wooed his art with passion passing the love of woman far away above the acres of huddled roofs and chimney-pots the storm-mists thinned lifting transiently through them gray fairy-like the towers of westminster and the houses of parliament bulked monstrous and unreal fading when again the fugitive dun vapors closed down upon the city never at hand the shade of care nudged kirkwood's elbow whispering subtly romance was indeed dead the world was cold and cruel. The gloom deepened. In the cant of modern metaphysics, the moment was psychological. There came a rapping at the door. Kirkwood removed the pipe from between his teeth long enough to say, Come in, pleasantly. The knob was turned, the door opened. Kirkwood, turning on one heel, beheld hesitant upon the threshold a diminutive figure in the livery of the Pless Pages. "'Mr. Kirkwood?' Kirkwood nodded. "'Gentlemen to see you, sir.' Kirkwood nodded again, smiling if somewhat perplexed. Encouraged, the child advanced, proffering a silver card tray at the end of an unnaturally rigid forearm. Kirkwood took the card dubiously between thumb and forefinger and inspected it without prejudice. "'George B. Callender,' he read. "'George B. Callender.' but I know no such person. Sure there's no mistake, young man? The close-cropped, bullet-shaped British head was agitated in vigorous negation, and card for Mr. Kirkwood was mumbled in dispassionate accents appropriate to a recitation by rote. Very well, but before you show him up, ask this Mr. Callender if he is quite sure he wants to see Philip Kirkwood. Yes, sir the child marched out punctiliously closing the door kirkwood tamped down the tobacco in his pipe and puffed energetically dismissing the interruption to his reverie as a matter of no consequence
an obvious mistake to be rectified by two words with this Mr. Callender, whom he did not know. At the knock, he had almost hoped it might be Brentwick, returning with a changed mind about the bid to dinner. He regretted Brentwick sincerely. Theirs was a curious sort of friendship, extraordinarily close in view of the meagerness of either's information about the other, to say nothing of the disparity between their ages. Concerning the elder man, Kirkwood knew little more than they had met on shipboard, coming over, that Brentwick had spent some years in America, that he was an Englishman by birth, a cosmopolitan by habit, by profession a gentleman, employing that term in its most uncompromisingly British significance, and by inclination a collector of articles of virtue and bigotry, in pursuit of which he made frequent excursions to the continent from his residence in a quaint, quiet street of old Brompton. It had been during his not infrequent, but ordinarily abbreviated, sojourns in Paris that their steamer acquaintance had ripened into an affection almost filial on the one hand, almost paternal on the other. There came a rapping at the door. Kirkwood removed the pipe from between his teeth long enough to say, Come in, pleasantly. The knob was turned, the door opened. Kirkwood, swinging on one heel, beheld hesitant upon the threshold a rather rotund figure of medium height, clad in an expressionless gray lounge suit, with a brown bowler hat held tentatively in one hand, an umbrella weeping in the other. A voice, which was unctuous and insinuative, emanated from the figure. "'Mr. Kirkwood?' Kirkwood nodded, with some effort recalling the name. So detached had been his thoughts since the disappearance of the page. "'Yes, Mr. Callender. Are you, uh, busy, Mr. Kirkwood?' "'Are you, Mr. Callender?' Kirkwood's smile robbed the retort of any flavor of incivility. Encouraged, the man entered, premising that he would detain his host but a moment, and readily surrendering hat and umbrella. Kirkwood, putting the latter aside, invited his collar to the easy chair which Brentwick had occupied by the fireplace. "'It takes the edge off the dampness,' Kirkwood explained, in deference to the other's look of pleased surprise at the cheerful bed of coals. "'I'm afraid I could never get acclimated to life in a cold, damp room, or a damp, cold room, such as you Britishers prefer.' "'It is grateful,' Mr. Callender agreed, spreading plump and well-cared-for hands to the warmth but you are mistaken i am as much an american as yourself yes kirkwood looked the man over with more interest less matter-of-course courtesy he proved not unprepossessing this unclassifiable mr calendar he was dressed with some care his complexion was good and the fullness of his girth emphasized as it was by a notable lack of inches bespoke a nature genial easy-going and sybaritic his dark eyes, heavy-lidded, were active, curiously at times with a subdued glitter. In a face large, round, pink, of which the other most remarkable features were a moustache, close-trimmed and showing streaks of grey, a chubby nose, and duplicate chins. Mr. Callender was furthermore possessed of a polished bald spot, girdled with a tonsure of silvered hair circumstances which lent some factitious distinction to a personality otherwise commonplace. 
His manner might be best described as uneasy with assurance, as though he frequently found it necessary to make up for his unimpressive stature by assuming an unnatural habit of authority. And there you have him. Beyond these points, Kirkwood was conscious of no impressions. The man was apparently neutral-tinted of mind as well as of body. "'So you knew I was an American, Mr. Callender,' suggested Kirkwood. "'Saw your name on the register. We both hail from the same neck of the woods, you know.' "'I didn't know it. And?' "'Yes, I'm from Frisco, too. And I'm sorry.' Mr. Callender passed five fat fingers nervously over his moustache, glanced alertly up at Kirkwood, as if momentarily inclined to question his tone, then again stared glumly into the fire, for Kirkwood had maintained an attitude purposefully colorless. Not to put too fine a point upon it, he believed that his caller was lying. The man's appearance, his mannerisms, his voice and enunciation, while they might have been American, seemed all un-Californian. To one born and bred in that state, as Kirkwood had been, her sons are unmistakably hallmarked. Now, no man lies without motive. This one chose to reaffirm, with a show of deep feeling. Yes, I'm from Frisco, too. We're companions in misfortune. I hope not altogether, said Kirkwood politely. Mr. Callender drew his own inferences from the response and mustered up a show of cheerfulness. Then you're not completely wiped out. To the contrary, I was hoping you were less unhappy. Oh, then you are... Kirkwood lifted the cable message from the mantel. I have just heard from my partner at home, he said with a faint smile, and quoted, Everything gone... No insurance. Mr. Callender pursed his plump lips, whistling inaudibly. Too bad. Too bad, he murmured sympathetically. We're all hard hit, more or less. He lapsed into dejected apathy, from which Kirkwood, growing at length impatient, found it necessary to rouse him. You wish to see me about something else, I'm sure? Mr. Callender started from his reverie. Eh? I was dreaming. I beg pardon. It seems hard to realize, Mr. Kirkwood, that this awful catastrophe has overtaken our beloved metropolis. The canting phrases wearied Kirkwood. Abruptly he cut in. Would a sovereign help you out, Mr. Callender? I don't mind telling you that's about the limit of my present resources. Pardon me, Mr. Callender's moonlight countenance darkened. He assumed a transparent dignity. "'You misconstrue my motive, sir.' "'Then I'm sorry. "'I am not here to borrow. "'On the other hand, quite by accident, "'I discovered your name upon the register downstairs. "'A good old Frisco name, if you will permit me to say so. "'I thought to myself that here was a chance to help a fellow countryman.' Calendar paused, interrogative. "'Kirkwood remained interested, but silent. "'If a passage across would help you, I—' "'I think it might be arranged,' stammered Callender, ill at ease. "'It might,' admitted Kirkwood, speculative. "'I could fix it so that you could go over, first class, of course, "'and pay your way, so to speak, by rendering us, me and my partner, a trifling service.' "'Ah? In fact,' continued Callender, warming up to his theme, "'there might be something more in it for you than the passage, "'if, if you're the right man.' 
the man I'm looking for. That, of course, is the question. Eh? Calendar pulled up suddenly in a full-winged flight of enthusiasm. Kirkwood eyed him steadily. I said that is a question, Mr. Calendar, whether or not I am the man you're looking for. Between you and me, and the fire-dogs, I don't believe I am. Now, if you wish to name your quid pro quo, this trifling service I'm to render in recognition of your benevolence, you may. Yes, slowly, but the speaker delayed his reply, until he had surveyed his host from head to foot, with a glance both critical and appreciative. He saw a man in height rather less than the stock size six feet, so much in demand by the manufacturers of modern heroes of fiction. A man a bit round-shouldered, too, but otherwise sturdily built, self-contained, well-groomed. Kirkwood wears a boy's honest face. No one has ever called him handsome. A few prejudiced persons have decided that he has an interesting countenance. The propounders of this verdict have been, for the most part, feminine. Kirkwood himself has been heard to declare that his features do not fit. In its essence, the statement is true, but there is a very real, if undefinable, engaging quality in their very irregularity. His eyes are brown, pleasant, said wide apart, straightforward of expression. Now it appeared that, whatever his motive, Mr. Callender had acted upon impulse in sending his card up to Kirkwood. Possibly he had anticipated a very different sort of reception from a very different sort of man. Even in the light of subsequent events, it remains difficult to fathom the mystery of his choice. Perhaps fate directed it. Stranger things have happened at the dictates of a man's destiny. At all events, this calendar proved not lacking in penetration. Men of his stamp are commonly endowed with that quality to an eminent degree. Not slow to reckon the caliber of the man before him, the leaven of intuition began to work in his adipose intelligence. He owned himself baffled. "'Thanks,' he concluded pensively. "'I reckon you're right. You won't do, after all. I've wasted your time. Mine, too.' "'Don't mention it.' Calendar got heavily out of his chair, reaching for his hat and umbrella. "'Permit me to apologize for an unwarrantable intrusion, Mr. Kirkwood.' He faltered. A worried and calculating look shadowed his small eyes. I was looking for someone to serve me in a certain capacity. Certain or questionable, propounded Kirkwood blandly, opening the door. Pointedly, Mr. Callender ignored the imputation. Sorry I disturbed you. Good afternoon, Mr. Kirkwood. Goodbye, Mr. Callender. A smile twitched the corners of Kirkwood's too wide mouth. Callender stepped hastily out into the hall. As he strode, or rather rolled, away, Kirkwood maliciously feathered a Parthian arrow. "'By the way, Mr. Callender,' the sound of retreating footsteps was stilled, and, "'Yes,' came from the gloom of the corridor. "'Were you ever in San Francisco, really and truly, honest injun, Mr. Callender?' For a space the quiet was disturbed by harsh breathing, then, in a strained voice, Good day, Mr. Kirkwood, and again the sound of departing footfalls. Kirkwood closed the door and the incident simultaneously with a smart bang of finality. 
Laughing quietly, he went back to the window, with its dreary outlook, now the drearier for lengthening evening shadows. I wonder what his game is, anyway. An adventurer, of course. The woods are full of em. A queer fish, even of his kind. And with a trick up his sleeve, as queer and fishy as himself. No doubt. End of chapter 1 Recording by William Tomko.